Hey listeners, we've loved delving into the business of wine with you and our guests. Your feedback via email, text, social media, and by joining us on our live episodes on Clubhouse has meant the world to us, and we keep striving to do better and better. Some of you have asked on how you can help support the show. So we've decided to launch on Patreon, where your contributions can offset the cost of the show and you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. To become a patron of X Chateau, go to patreon.com slash X Chateau to lend your support starting at $5 a month. You can find the link in our show notes or on xchateau.com. We will give a shout out to all new patrons each episode. Hey everyone, I'll take a moment to thank our newest patrons on the Patreon platform. We greatly appreciate your support. First up is Noel H., who I've got to know over Instagram for the last couple of years, but as well as uh, recently in person through the MW program. Bailey M., I appreciate your support as well. And Joanne T., we all appreciate you making this show possible through your generous contributions. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be focusing on developing a wine brand for millennials. And our guest is Ben Matthews, co-founder and winemaker at Territorium Wines. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I was hoping you could give Peter and I a brief overview of your background and how you founded Territorium Wines. Yeah, so I'd say in some ways my path into wine is not unlike a lot of other folks. I caught the wine bug, so to speak, when I got the chance in undergrad to study in Germany. As part of that time there, I was able to travel through the Rheingau, Rheinhessen, Baden, and really just fell in love with the vineyards and seeing all this uh, crazy steep slopes that they were farming and seeing how that impacted terroir. And that's where I definitely uh, caught the bug around Riesling. I got to try different types, different styles. And then I came back home to where I lived at the time, Cincinnati, and found out that you know there was a winemaking heritage there. So I kind of delved into this background of early 1800s wine in North America and Longworth and Cincinnati and John DeFore, these other these kind of pioneers of the early trade and just kind of kept going down this rabbit hole. At the same time, I was doing this, developing my corporate career, trying as a young guy to start out in the corporate world and ended up at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati and was doing that for a long time and studying uh, my MBA. And so wine for me for a while was just drinking it, enjoying it, enjoying food and going out to restaurants and my now wife and I definitely, as we were kind of had a budding relationship, we're crushing a lot of New England Sav Blanc and drinking a lot of kind of entry level wines and then got more and more into it and had some family friends who were really into wine, kind of exposed us to some higher end examples. Before you know it, we're watching, uh, I think it was a year in Burgundy on Netflix. I was like, you know what? I thought this was a cool industry. I've, I've always been interested in it. So I bought a home winemaking kit that night, just the equipment. I found frozen grape must out of California and started making wine a few weeks later. Then that further went down to like planting a little mini hobby vineyard, studying at UC Davis on their online winemaking certification. And then that ultimately culminated in taking a leave of absence from my corporate day job and going to train in Napa Valley, working harvest in 2018. All that kind of combined with business background and uh, love of wine 
just wanted to see how could I start a small brand and how could just kind of get this thing going and scale it over time. And I was lucky enough along the way to encounter Jim Duane actually through a podcast, his podcast, Inside Winemaking. I know you guys have done a show with him. He has been a great resource, mentor and friend, and now business partner in Territorium. And my other business partner, Camlin Laurent, who's out of Sacramento, was also an avid listener of the Inside Winemaking podcast. And we met on a trip in 2017 that Jim had organized. And uh, my wife jokingly called it like wine camp, but it's a, it was Jim's deep winemaking course that he did. It was really like a technical immersion into winemaking in Napa. So jumping around a bit there, but between 2018 and 19, we really were working on the business plan for Territorium and had originally had a full model and actually an investor group lined up to launch a urban winery in Cincinnati and pivoted in March of 2020 with the onset of the pandemic, obviously realized that in-person dining and having a kind of a service model was going to be a big challenge. So that gave birth to the rise of the kind of digital DTC model for Territorium, which we've been very pleasantly surprised with. And we're getting ready to launch our, our second release of wines this coming March 11th. So actually next week, since we're recording this. Just to back up a little bit, uh, New England Savion Blanc? Sorry, New Zealand. I, I Maybe I misspoke there. Yeah, I'm kind of cold a little bit. Maybe muddling my words a bit. Or and I were like, is that a thing? Maybe Long Island? Like, Yeah, no, no, New Zealand sad block. We used to be uh, the cat pee and grassy uh, flavor lovers and just absolutely could go crazy for it. I think it was the acid in it. I'm kind of an acid head, probably why I like Riesling. So really got into that early on. And there for a time there, my wife felt like she couldn't drink red wine. So uh, now that's that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. But I don't know if it was the red wine she was drinking in college or what. But Got it. That makes a lot more sense. So I think at your day job at P&G, you do some research into millennials. And we love to explore how that connects with wine and territorium. What do you think are the core drivers millennials have in terms of purchasing and repeat purchasing products in general? Yeah, I think the great part about kind of having two lives here is P&G is a company that invented the idea of brand management. And I never had a textbook in business school that didn't mention Procter & Gamble. And I, I feel like being around that environment and really truly a business and an organization that is totally driven by the consumer helps inform kind of how I approach Territorium, absolutely. And I think how the company Territorium, how we approach the wine industry. And for us, I think from a millennial focus, obviously it's a challenge for the wine industry right now on how do we appeal to millennial consumers. And what I think mostly is the driver for repeat purchases for millennials is are you showing that your brand, one can show the quality and kind of the, what I, for lack of a better term, kind of like the fundamentals and the composition that millennials are looking for. So they're looking for straightforward, kind of natural, more, well, I guess kind of say natural, but kind of less synthetic ingredients, less manufactured, things that they seem as big industrial scale, a lot of additives and things like that, generally speaking, is something that millennials seem to be shying away from. If you look at even just graphic design these days, like it's, it's very minimalist, it's very simple. That's very in vogue right now. And I think that speaks to Looking back like 20 years ago, there was a lot of, I think, kind of opulence and the shelf got really confusing. I mean, like when I joined Procter & Gamble, this was something, they were in a transition point. Like we had brands like Olay and Head & Shoulders. We had some of our color cosmetics business and stuff at the time that I joined, where there was just too much choice. There was a lot of confusing labels. There was a lot of different 
sub brands within a brand and the consumer looked at it and it was like a Christmas tree of options. And they were like, I don't know what to select. And I kind of feel like in some ways the wine market has some overlap there on it's very complex. It's intimidating to some people. And I think what millennial consumers are wanting to see is tell me what your brand values are. Are you making a product that I can understand? And are you transparent about what your manufacturing practices are, your sourcing? And does that align with my values? I don't think it's necessarily that millennials are as price sensitive as sometimes we think they are in the wine world. I I think that's definitely a factor. I'm not discounting that. They've shown a propensity to spend and use some of their disposable income if they feel that the brand can tick these boxes for them, if the brand can show they align with their values, that they feel like buying this product is going to do a good thing for the larger society, environment, something like that. doesn't have to always be kind of social or environmental, but there is usually for millennials more in their purchase decision than just what's the economic calculus here? Is it Do I feel like it's a good value equation? Their value equation often includes a lot of like why and kind of more intuitive things than it does very rational kind of economic thinking. Like I think sometimes classically marketing would get into, are you a certain demo? Do you have a certain income and you'll buy a certain thing? And I think that's shifting, especially with millennials. The crowded shelf story resonates with me. I had friends from Norway come a long time ago. Maybe this is like 15 years ago. And they went into an American supermarket and they're like, what the heck is going on here? There's like a million choices of everything. They're like, we have like two of those things in Norway. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and I think especially with American companies, obviously it's harder to get products into distribution and more far flung markets from where you're headquartered. But in P&G, I think we for a while there got into that trap, which you get into skew proliferation. You have a lot of different offerings and you're just trying to crowd out shelf space, which there's good reason for that. There's an economic case for that. Arms race. Yeah, absolutely. But then you get into choice paralysis, I think, and people get confused and then they totally will disqualify your brand in their choice set because they say, well, look, I'm so confused by your shelf set. I'm going to go to somewhere else that's a little more simple and something I can comprehend. So how do you think those factors differ for P&G's products versus wine? I think the repeat purchase factors around is this a brand that I want to continually support? It's really going to be, do they feel they're getting that quality? I mean, that's kind of table stakes for everybody, right? But then the values thing that I just touched on, I think that's true for wine as it is for other CPG products. At the end of the day, I think whether the product's going on you, around you, or you're consuming it, you're worried about, is this a product that is going to be healthy for me? Do I feel like by me giving money to this company, I'm supporting an organization that is doing things that I'd be proud of and that I would want to fund ultimately? I think between wine and lotion or your hairspray, it's still similar. I mean, like I still think consumers want to support brands that they feel they'd be proud to tell their friends about. It's almost like the, uh, it's an old example, but like Tom's Shoes. Or like the little market, these brands that have a social mission, and that's a core part of their marketing strategy. That's something you're proud to tell your friends about. Like how many times when Tom's came out 10, 15 years ago, did you hear about, well, for every pair you buy, they'll donate a pair to somebody in need. Obviously, that ended up having its own challenges and things, but it was something that was sticky 
and people would tell other people and it increased their word of mouth velocity on just kind of people hearing about the brand. So I think that is ultimately where there's some overlap between wine and other CPG products. And right now, I don't know that we see a ton of it in wine. There is definitely some brands that have social missions and they are supporting charitable things and other environmental missions. But it's not something that is seemingly, especially in the last like three, four years, as widespread as the other CPG products that you see out there. I am curious if there's a difference between products that are like wearable versus that you actually like consume or like toothpaste or put into your body, whether it's a medicine or lotion that you're putting on your body versus something that's removed a layer of proximity, a different layer of intimacy with that product. Does that need for understanding the mission change? Have you seen any differentiation there based on like how the consumer uses the product? Yes. I think it's interesting because you could think about, and even at P&G, we talk about kind of in you, on you, around you. And obviously, if you're consuming a product, you're probably most concerned about any potential safety concerns or what are the ingredients and things like that. But at the same time, I mean, look how the proliferation of kind of clean ingredient messaging in cosmetics is ubiquitous. I mean, it's everywhere. So I think in you, on you is probably similar, but obviously there's probably a greater degree of severity of how concerned you are about the ingredients if you're consuming it. The interesting thing that I think we'll see in the next few years is the advent of more transparency on kind of household goods and things around you. To me, generally, I think it's just a broader trend across every consumer product that people want to know more information. And with the advent of things like smart label and QR code technology that can help you quickly get to information, it's just going to become the norm, I think, if it already has it, to be honest. So I think the big companies are leading the way on that, obviously, but you see all these small brands popping up that are really leaning in on this clean ingredient messaging. And we've seen that in wine too recently. I mean, I loved y'all's episode with Eric on that, but at the end of the day, it's an irreversible trend. Right. There's transparency that's needed. So you mentioned you pivoted from an urban winery to this DTC model with Territorium. So I'm curious at the high level, as you're going to build, you're like, hey, we're going to build this brand and address this millennial marketing based on your experience at PNG. Where do you start that? Like, what's the first step? The first step is it like figuring out what kind of wines, is it figuring out what kind of packaging, what kind of mission? Like, how do you start that process? Because that's a major pivot. Totally. Yeah. I would say generally, that was something we started even prior to the urban winery model. So when I got home from Harvest, December 2018, two weeks later, I met with one of my good friends, Meredith Post, who is a design director at LPK, which is a branding and marketing agency based, or one of their big offices is here in Cincinnati serving Procter & Gamble and other big CPG brands here. And I said, hey, I think I'm going to take a run at this winery thing. The first thing I want to do is think about the brand strategy. And that has to start with who is my who? And that's been ingrained into me at PNG. Who is my target consumer? What is the job to be done? What am I trying to help them solve? And how are we trying to kind of bring them into this wine world in a way that resonates with them? It's authentic to them. We actually came up with what's called like an inspirational design target where we came up with these fictitious characters that it's like an agglomeration of people I know and research data and what do they do on the weekends? And their names are Jake and Megan. And are just kind of these average, what I would call older millennial professionals. They're building their wealth, they're building their income, 
and honestly, kind of, I'm 35. It's kind of my friends and people that I'm around as kind of a person my age working in a, a corporate job. And I think there's some brands that are serving this consumer group for sure. But I think there's some things that was missing. And we really wanted to start with that as the foundation on how do we start to think about the go-to-market strategy and how we're building Territorium. Because I think that's kind of the lens that informs the varieties we pick, the style we're targeting, more tactical decisions like packaging and things like that. That was really what we did first. We wanted to identify our who. Okay, so you identified your who, you made these personas, you've built some profiles. What are the things that you have to nail? What are your like top five things you need to nail in order to resonate with these personas that you've built? What is different from what other wide brands in the market are doing? Like, what are the five things you got to nail? I will say too, I mean, we're less than a year fully operational. So some of this stuff is aspirational still. We're working towards it. But for us, I think first and foremost, it's we want to make a wine. One, you had to get to be at the right price point, I think. While millennials are not just solely driven by price, I think there is just economic realities that we can kind of talk a little more on. But that we need to just be cognizant and aware of kind of what's the ceiling of what a millennial would be willing to pay for a bottle of wine. Can you throw out a range that you identified? I think it's where we're at on our price point. It's kind of that 25 to maybe low 40s bottle of wine. And that's for a kind of single vineyard craft wine that to me, the way we look at it as a point of market entry into this high-end fine wine space. Definitely, it's compared to your average Napa cab or something like that. We're not really touching those. We're sometimes like a third of the price of those, depending on the wine. But I think if you're asking a consumer and you're asking them their day-to-day budget decisions and why they drink wine and what is the job it's doing for them, that's not necessarily your Tuesday night Netflix and just hanging out wine. The way I always describe it is like, your any Friday night wine. It's something you'd be proud to open and excited to open with friends, especially if they're into wine and food. But you're not going to open up a $150 bottle on a random March Friday night, right? A couple of things you said there. In that 25 to low 40s price point, you then also said single vineyard, single variety. How important are those two aspects to your target personas? I think that's something we're still trying to learn on, to be honest. I think it's funny, our most popular wine was Cap Franc that we just sold out of. And I don't know if you ask consumers, were you drinking a cab? Did they know it was Cab Franc every time? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, we did a lot of education, especially in the few events and things that we did last year. We talked a lot about the varietal and its history and its parentage to Cab Sav. But, you know, if you ask people, what was your favorite? Nine times out of 10, they answered, oh, it was the cab. I don't know if that means they were really into the idea of the Cap Franc. The way we're looking at it is, and I think the way we've approached it is, what's the experience of drinking the wine? And Cap Franc, the reason we like it, it has a lot of the same flavor profiles as the familiar Cab Sav grape, but it's slightly different. So it's kind of taken that familiarity you're used to, but giving you a 20 to 30 degree different experience. And for us... The varieties are going to be important. We want to have a blend of kind of staple things that people are familiar with, not getting too esoteric, too out there. But on occasion, we do want to kind of push things a little bit to maybe something out of the mainstream, Sav Blanc, Chard, Cab Sav, Pinot, all that. Even though we still have some of those in our portfolio, we want to bring in things like Riesling and Cap Franc, Rosé of Grenache, which is, I think, for some consumers, a little interesting. I've had 
questions as we've started to launch this new rosé is like, why is Grenache on the front label? What does that mean? And then you're able to talk about that variety and the flavors it brings and why we chose it. I think it's something millennials in general too, sorry to be a little long-winded on this, but I think in general, they like learning about things. They've demonstrated that with craft beers. I mean, if you asked me in college in 2007 to tell you what a session IPA was, I would have no idea what you're talking about. But now I can tell you I know exactly what it is, right? It's a kind of low ABV, low IBU IPA that is nice and easy drinking. But that's something people have learned over time. And they've had kind of anchor points to latch on to when they see beer lists and things like that, that there's a lot of different data points to look at, but they figured it out because they've been trying it and experiencing it. And I think that's some of the things we're trying to do with like labeling and our messaging online. And again, we haven't figured it out totally. We see the opportunity. And so how much are you concerned about or speaking about like where the vineyards are coming from, how they're farmed? How important is that? Again, going back to the, this is coming something that they're going to be consumed going inside them. How do you talk about that and how transparent are you around that area? We're pretty transparent. All of our current growers partners are having some sort of sustainable practice in their farming operation. So whether that's fish-friendly farming, SIP certified, fully organic, our goal is that we get to a point where 100% of our wines are coming from fully organic vineyards. It's hard as a small brand, especially if you know, you're coming in and you're not going to be buying a ton of tonnage. You are trying to tell them, hey, well, we want you to farm organic or we want you to not use this fungicide or something like that. When you've talked to a farmer who's been doing that for 20 plus years, they're, most of the time they're going to say, well, sorry, I think you need to go look somewhere else. So I think that's a reality, but I do think it's important. I think it's important to the consumers because ultimately, you know, as we see more wildfires, we see more drought, we see more the effects of environmental degradation that we're seeing across the board due to climate change, due to poor farming practices, things like that. Consumers don't want a luxury product like wine. And I say luxury is in a sense of not necessarily just a price point, but like you know, it's something you're doing for leisure and fun. They don't want that to contribute to these pretty awful trends we're all seeing. And especially if they have kids and things. And that's also another major shift that we're seeing in millennials. I mean, like there's a huge, almost 50% of them that are now becoming the majority of parents in the country. And that's a huge shift from where they've been historically. So that's obviously going to influence their buying habits. And I think that's going to make these environmental practices and sustainability and kind of the company values even more important than they were previously. And if we could talk a little bit about packaging. So two vectors here, the first one being appeal about like getting them to reach for it on the shelf if they're going to a physical thing or looking at the label and saying, oh, this resonates with me. And the second one being transparency in terms of how you're telling your story through it. I was wondering if you could talk about those two areas and how important are those to this group? Yeah. So obviously at PNG, we call it the first moment of truth. It's kind of been ingrained in me too. So if I don't capture your eye on the shelf or as you're scrolling through Instagram, I don't catch your eye with an interesting package design and label. I'm not going to be able to continue the conversation with you, right? So I think that's really, really important. You have to have a design that is for one reason or another appealing and whether that's because it's simple and clean and people are attracted to that just kind of from the minimalistic perspective, or you have a stunning graphic or something that catches their eye and then leads them to explore more. 
that's really important. And then from a, I think you mentioned transparency. I think that's something that we've frankly had a lot of internal discussions on. I'm definitely very supportive of more transparency on the label. The problem is though, I think your label is only so much real estate, right? And you don't want to lose people by trying to overload them with your communication. I think you have to prioritize what are you communicating. For us, we felt like it was still important to stay within the industry kind of architecture and things that people are used to because wine's already confusing enough. We didn't want to completely upend that. Obviously, our brand is number one priority, communicate territorium. We want people to remember that name and resonate with it. Then we want them to get what is the wine, what's the variety, what's the region or the appellation or the vineyard. But also, if you look at the back label, we have these tasting icons that we've launched with initially and have gotten really good feedback on. And that's really just trying to give people confidence in their ability to taste or what they're going to taste without giving them a lengthy paragraph of tasting notes on the back label or a story about the vineyard or something like that. We're trying to keep it simple and to the point. And, you know, I think using cues like that and design elements like that are more intuitive rather than you having to read through it is something we really want to do. And if you notice on the front label, we've tried to put this abstract graphic that us, honestly, we started with the creative challenge with our designer, Tommy Sheehan, who's another guy here. He did like the Maker's Mark 46 label and has just been in the spirits and craft beer space and done some in wine as well. But we said to Tommy, we want to visualize tasting notes. So like when you have that visceral experience of tasting the wine, how do we represent that with a graphic image? And it was kind of this overlapping of colors and shapes. And we kind of, we even talked about, you know, should we go different directions on like the shapes of the graphic images representing the structure and all that. And it's like, well, it's, we're just going to try to do one vector right now, the colors representing the flavors. And that correlates to the tasting icons on the back and just trying to give kind of the people the greatest hits of what they might get in the wine. Obviously people might get something different, but us as a winemaking team, when we're getting ready to lock in the final wine, we say, what are the top four that we get? And we we hash it out and then we lock the design. So I noticed that, is it the size of the colors on the front? Does that mean that the flavor that it's mapped to on the back is bigger for that particular flavor? Yeah, it can. So I think we've been a little loose with that, I think, because we obviously we want the visual appeal to be there. So I think we want to make sure the first and foremost, it's striking artwork, but then it kind of represents what you'll get. So I would say directionally, yes, that's true. Whether somebody got more grapefruit or cucumber in the rosé, I don't know. Like that's going to be up to each person. But generally speaking, yes, they're kind of rank ordered in their size and prominence. And how do you think, I mean, I don't know if your wines are intended for aging, but flavor profiles change over time for wine. It could be a living thing. How does that play in with that concept? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think we've made our wines more ready to drink now. I think definitely like our Cap Francs could age. I mean, they certainly have the tannin structure and pit calls were trying to keep a good acid structure on there as well. So I think they have the potential for aging. But again, I think thinking about our consumer, I don't know that that's really who we're marketing to. Like, do they have the space to have a big seller and age the wine? I think most of our consumers don't. So it's not been a major focus for us. But yeah, I mean, over time, if you're opening up our 18 Cap Franc 
2028, it may not have all those layers, but I think directionally it'll still be true. And again, I always kind of say it's like, it's the greatest hits. It's not going to be what everybody gets every time. So just trying to give people a sense of what the wine could be on shelf. And then you mentioned on the back label, there's a few bullets around the sort of the terroir, the geography, geology of that region that's specified as an Appalachian. Is that for the vineyard specifically that it comes from or the Appalachian as a whole? And have customers mentioned anything about that? I don't know yet. So that's new on our current release wines. We didn't have it on our first release. And the goal there is we're trying to give people some hooks to remember about, okay, well, this was Sandy Loam soil. I remember that. And I remember the way this Pinot Noir tasted. Next time I have a wine from that region, I could ask them about the soil and see, does that influence the structure? It's kind of taking a higher level approach, I think, and trying to give people a little bit of sense of impact of terroir to flavors. But we haven't fully tested it out yet. I think to answer your earlier question, it is for the vineyard specifically. Obviously, legal reasons and things and agreement reasons why we couldn't use one of the vineyard names. So we just listed the appellation there but all the wines are single vineyard. So that's something that we're going to w- test and see if it works. If people st- it resonates with people, we'll keep it on the label. If we feel like it's over consumers' heads or they don't care, then I think it's something we'll shift and use that space for something else. On your back label, you lead with, connect with us on Instagram at Territorium Wines, and then you have a QR code that directly links to their website. How important have those been or your consumers, and have they been driving significant traffic? It's hard to say because I think most of our sales so far have come through existing social connections, word of mouth. The reason we put it on there was, one, we wanted to drive people. I mean, Instagram's where we're most active. We think from a social platform perspective, it's best suited to represent a wine brand and kind of the visual aesthetics that appeal with wine. So we wanted to drive people to that or at least get our name out there so people were aware that we had an Instagram account because we're pretty active there. The QR code, we started and we've just kept it this second round as going to the website. And that was really something we did and decided on in late 2020 with all the use of QR codes because of the pandemic. And we said, well, people are getting used to this kind of behavior and we would love to drive people to our website more often. And if they're interested, you could just scan that real quick and go there. I think down the road, we'll probably keep that on. It's We've gotten some comments about it. We've gotten some positive feedback. And we'll probably do more targeted placements with that. So if you want to buy this wine again, maybe we'll have more calls to action to do that. So then you could take you right to that purchase page or it would, you scan it on shelf and then see it's sold out or something like that. And that is something over time, I think we're going to, As the portfolio grows, we're going to be more focused on where it's taking people and where we're trying to drive them on the website. But right now, because we're so new, we only have two wines on the website. Now we're going to have five. We want to just get people to our space so they could learn about the club. They could learn about the different wines, who we are, all that. We were just in Italy and we saw one of the wineries was telling us that there's a new rules coming about in the EU about having nutritional information for the wines, like the calories and things like that. So they just decided to put a QR code because these things are going to change over time. And it's just easy for them to update that. And everybody's used to using it as well. So it was really interesting to see another use of that code as a something they could change on the back end anytime they want when they have new regulations, new information that they need to update. Totally. Yeah. And that's happening in the CPG space. I mean, PNG, we use smart label and that's usually a QR code. 
where people can go learn about the ingredients and what's in the product and the nutrition information, warning, safety information, things like that. I don't know that we touched on it, but as we're talking about packaging, I mean, we've had a lot of discussion on transparency and frankly, should we put ingredients on the label or not? That's something that we all feel strongly we want to be transparent about our winemaking. And I think you look at somebody like Ridge, you've been leading the way in that for decades. Like I said earlier, it's an irreversible trend, transparency. So we should get in front of it and be leaders in it. But on the label, we felt like there's not a lot of real estate and there's not a lot of space to contextualize. We are not natural winemaking. We will use certain additives in the winery and we want to be transparent about that. But we also want to contextualize why we're using those and why we feel like as wine drinkers ourselves, we're okay with putting these in our own wines. So that's something with our new launch, we're going to have on the site a page about our winemaking philosophy what additives we will use in the winery, and then also ingredients for each of our wines. But that'll be on the site so it can kind of live there with more real estate and more time to kind of explain to consumers who maybe heard different messaging about wine is just grapes, but that I'd say most of the time is not the case with most of the wines on shelf, but they don't have that information. They don't see it. So if we were to put it on there, it could be a disadvantage if we couldn't contextualize it. And so would that live on each wine's text sheet? Yes, maybe. We haven't put it on the text sheets yet. I think what it's going to live on is actually the product page. So there's going to be information on the wine about what ingredients were used. And then we'll probably have a larger page. It's in progress right now. So we're working out all the details, but it's kind of here's Territorium's philosophy on additives we'll use in the winery and what those are used for and what they do for the wine. I noticed you have a decent amount of info on your text sheet, like TA, total acidity, and or titratable acidity, depending <laughs> how you define it, and pH, another measure of acid. What do you think is the right level of detail that your target audience is interested in? I think those are really intended more for the small subset, I would say, of really nerdy wine drinkers that are kind of in our consumer target, broadly speaking, and wholesale trade folks. So, I mean, that's something that we're slowly ramping up, especially as COVID restrictions are hopefully easing and we're moving out of that phase. We've focused more on wholesale. And I think those are obviously something you need to service that channel. So those kind of chemistry data points are something that we've put on there just to kind of stay within the industry heuristic rule of thumb of kind of expect to see these things on the tech sheet. But honestly, I think what consumers are most concerned about is the story of where did these grapes come from and how was it produced? What are the flavors it brings? What are the tasting notes? I don't know that they really, really care about pH 95% of the time. It's over consumers' heads. And frankly, they don't really need to know about that, to be honest, because Unless you're making wine or you're really trying to understand as a buyer, like how will this wine taste or how will it perform, how will it age? I don't know that those data points are useful to you, but it is something I think for a small subset we have to have. Yeah, makes sense. So let's talk about the wine and how they taste. As you go to make wines, you had mentioned targeting a style. Like, So when we go to talk about the production method, you can, obviously you as winemakers get the, a chance to make a number of decisions, which greatly impact how this wine will taste. Is there a profile or a millennial palette or millennial style that you're going for? And how would you define that? Like, what do you think from a flavor profile resonates with the millennial drinkers? Yeah, well, I think it's obviously it's a diverse group, right? So it's, it's hard to say exactly. But 
generally speaking, and I think this aligns with Cam's almost a millennial. I think he's one year into being a Gen Xer and then I'm the only millennial in the team, but trying to kind of think about like what wines do we like to drink? And as we've had the ability being in this industry for a little bit to try different stuff and being wine lovers for a long time, how have our palates evolved? And ultimately, I think it's that cliche thing of in pursuit of balance, right? So we want our wines to be a little fresher, more acid driven. All of our wines that we made in 2021 are under 14% alcohol and they're all California wines. So that including our Bordelais red wines. So I think generally speaking, millennials like those lower ABV, fresher wines than the big, big, giant, bold, high percentage of new oak and things like that. I don't think it's something that long-term millennials are going to be gravitating towards personally. We may be wrong on that. I don't think it's been like fully vetted out or people really know because I don't know that millennials have really established a palette yet because there's obviously a demand problem there with some of them. I mean, it's there's a lot of strong fundamentals about the category of wine that I think line up with buying patterns and consumer desires of millennials, but I just don't think we've done a good job communicating those yet. Like the fact that it's an agricultural product and it's largely a natural product with few additives and things like that. But we haven't, I think, brought enough people into the category to settle on, here's what the millennial palette is. We're taking a bet that it's that fresher, balanced style because of, you look at seltzers, the rise of ciders, kind of the cocktails that millennials are drinking, there tend to be a little more like fresher, lighter, more acid-driven type beverages rather than really heavy, oaky, or kind of savory beverages that you might see with like, obviously bourbon is the one exception, maybe I would say, where it's kind of definitely a bolder, heavier beverage, but it's extremely popular. So I noticed online that you have a pretty, what I'll call classic wine club model for Territorium. Do you think wine clubs have a future with millennials or is it sort of like the old boomer model buying wine? Well, right now it's definitely the old boomer model buying wine for sure. I mean, if you look at like even wine club purchases during the pandemic, as much as I think millennials like to say we're the tech savvy ones and we buy online more, boomers were the number one uh, online wine purchasers, right? So that might just be a dollar share. I don't know the volumes, but we did see, I mean, there was bumps in wine club participation in the last two years as people were on lockdown and they were buying more online. Some of that behavior I think is going to be sticky. Like it will remain with millennials, especially as I mean, how many of us are joining up on the subscribe and save on Amazon and people in other areas of their life as a consumer do these subscription services and will kind of spend their money that way because it's convenient. And I think the fact that if you really like a wine brand, the fact that you know you're going to get a shipment, you know you're going to get a discount with that that you wouldn't normally have access to all the time. And if you're close to the winery or they're able to do digital events and things like that, you kind of get a little bit of community and social experience. All those things can appeal to millennials. I think it's just figuring out the right tactics and things that are important to them in the structure of the wine club to bring in. So, I mean, we're very traditional right now with our structure, but honestly, as a small winery, 
those discounts and things that we can offer is kind of the some of the best things we can provide the consumers. So that's where we start. Do you think millennials are moved to purchase with discounts? Is that like a core driver for them? I don't think it hurts. I mean, I don't know that it's a core driver for them. I, I think definitely millennials do look for deals. We're generally speaking more frugal consumer, especially as you look at just kind of broader economic data for millennials. There's less wealth. There's a little bit less purchasing power, particularly in the like younger millennials, so 33 and younger. I think we should, as an industry, start thinking about them maybe as like two separate groups somewhat. Because I think the median age of millennials, I think, is 34 right now. And those folks on kind of the older end of that median are seeing incomes rising. They have more career security and potentially more purchasing power. So I think with that group, they may be a little less price sensitive, but they're also more focused on things like family right now. And a lot of them are becoming parents. So in some ways, I actually think that aligns well with wine and our potential to appeal to that consumer. I can try to make a really, really awesome cocktail at home. And sometimes I nail it and sometimes I don't. And I think like some of the cocktail culture that has really been taken off in the last few years that millennials have been driving. If you're at home all the time with kids like I am right now, you're not getting that cocktail bar experience and things like that. So it doesn't mean I'm not going to drink spirits. I find myself gravitating more towards wine and I could envision other millennial consumers who are in that different life stage getting to a point where they are saying, you know, let's enjoy a bottle of wine tonight together, honey, rather than going out and having a few cocktails at our favorite kind of swanky lounge. So as you've created this brand targeting millennials, you've got the packaging, you've got a product. How are you driving awareness to these potential customers about Territorium Wines? What are you doing to get your story out there? Yeah, I think, you know, we're active on social media and we're in the midst right now. Like I said, we're still early on, but we are executing against a strategy to activate kind of these partnerships with what we kind of call adjacent categories. So right now I'm talking to a nutrition friend of mine who in her own messaging with her own clients has said, hey, moderate wine consumption can be something that's healthy and you can fit it into your fitness goals. That's something we're going to partner with her on to talk about kind of myth busting around wine and wine making and wine production, what goes into making wine, kind of what is clean wine. And then also talking about if you have a goal of achieving a certain body fat percentage or something like that, how could wine fit into that? So those consumers that are health and nutritious conscious seem to be adjacent to the category. And it's trying to expand our reach to those audiences that aren't necessarily always on like wine Instagram or in Vivino and things like that, that we're going to grow our base over time. We're also doing more in-person events in our core markets where we have boots on the ground and kind of where we can create a word of mouth presence. Because I think as the country starts to open up more and more and hopefully we don't see any more variants like you did with Delta and Omicron and all that, but people are anxious to get out and do things. And we feel like with wine, you can't replicate the in-person tasting experience. Yes, doing virtual events, I think is going to stay around, but it doesn't compare like for like for having that in-person tasting event where you actually get to experience the wine with the winemaker and all that. And then on top of that, I think we're also just trying to do more kind of sticky activations around 
Instagram posts, Facebook posts, and we're exploring more longer form on YouTube kind of content. Because those three platforms, as much as like TikTok and these other platforms are really popular with Gen Z and younger consumers, for our target kind of older millennial group, those are the three ones that they're playing in and that they're spending their time on. So that's where we're trying to focus with Instagram being the lead one. But expanding our reach through social is our primary way of communication. We have to ask, like, how effective have podcasts been? Have you gotten any uh, feedback from uh, mentions with Jim Dwayne's podcast? Yeah, these types of events too. Like we did a few last year with Jim's audience for Inside Winemaking. And that was more focused on that audience is really interested in how do they start a winery and how could they kind of activate a business plan and things like that. And we did see sales off of that. I wouldn't say it was like a gigantic driver, but podcasts are part of our media strategy for sure. And uh, we think that the great part about podcasts is you can have these long form discussions and really get into details with the audience that's engaged. And you don't get that on social media and stuff. So that's something we're trying to be targeted and focused on, like make sure it's an adjacent audience. I'm not going on a cars podcast or something that's completely unrelated, but kind of business, food and wine, nutrition, things that wine can have a credible overlap with. We're definitely interested in getting our story out there. So we talked about how as a whole, we need to, as a wine industry, engage millennials and the younger generations more. What do you think the industry as a whole needs to do to be able to engage millennials, even the younger ones, and Gen Z more with wine? Yeah, I think I may have touched on it earlier, but I feel like we've done a bunch of different exercises on kind of trying to define the job to be done and the tension points for our consumer. And again, it's that kind of 34, 35 to 45-year-old consumer. We have actually quite a few boomer customers and actually a few folks that are younger than that. But as we design our marketing, that's who we're thinking of. And one thing that I think has stuck out to us consistently as a tension point is it's kind of like there's a dichotomy in the wine world where it's either at the lower price points, obviously you're getting a more mass-produced wine that is heavily focused on the branding and the quality may or may not be there. I mean, we're seeing like the, if you look at like the Silicon Valley Bank report, consumption of wines under $11 or so is like, is going down. I think millennials are not interested in that type of product. I think that the really big mass produce kind of commoditized wine, I don't know that it's going to resonate with a consumer who's really interested in small niche brands, what's going into the product, cleanliness and kind of being sustainable and all that. Not to say that a brand can't figure it out, but right now I just I don't think the offerings that are currently there are going to appeal to millennials. That's kind of one side, and then you kind of have some of these other mid-tier uh, mass channel wines that are kind of in that eleven to twenty dollar range, which I think appeal to consumers, but I don't know that they're really delivering that full like artisan craft wine experience. And millennials are used to that with micro breweries all over the place craft cocktail lounges, which if you think about it, even though they're using kind of big brand mass-produced spirits in a lot of cases, there's still the artisan and craftsmanship that that high-end bartender is bringing to the experience. And there's a connection there. You can tell your friends how good the Manhattan is at XYZ bar or something like that. So that connection with the artisan and craft side of the business, I think is lacking for most of the kind of point of market entry wine brands. Part of that is economics and just reality of 
producing at scale at a certain price point. On the flip side, like if it's a truly high-end wine, I'm thinking primarily, honestly, Napa Valley and those kind of producers there that are making these amazing, delicious wines at an artisan way, that's out of reach for majority of millennials from a price point perspective. The gap is like there's not this point of market entry for artisan wines, generally speaking, for millennials. And I, I feel like we need to do a better job of communicating that and curating more offerings that are in that space, whether you're a bigger brand and you can kind of do more interesting things with a second label or something like that, that is geared towards millennials. Because at the end of the day, I feel like the fundamentals of wine align with the values of millennials in a lot of ways. I mean, we're an agricultural product. You have a lot of really committed people who are interested in the sustainability and long-term viability of their vineyard. I mean, you have generational farmers working the land a lot of times. And if you're asking me uh, to put that up against like some mass-produced GMO kind of product that millennials will buy on the cheap, I think if you really gave them the messaging and the transparency, they would gravitate towards the small farmer and the people who are worried about the sustainability of their vineyard and is it going to produce high-end, amazing wine that's healthy for the environment and their workers and all that. I think that's going to win out every time. I just don't know that we've talked about that. I mean, most of the time we're talking about new oak percentages and kind of the scores we got from certain wine critics and things like that. And I don't know that that resonates with millennials. So to wrap up this show, we want to end on a personal note with you. But I was wondering if you could tell us, what was the most memorable wine you drank in the last year and who did you drink it with? Yeah, my daughter's going to be one next week. And about almost a year to the day, we uh, opened up a bottle. We just happened to have, my wife was, uh, we had our daughter and going to have an extra glass of wine. and was like, hey, I'm not as worried about it. And uh, we had a 2018 Ridge Three Valleys, like not a super high-end crazy wine, but it was just awesome because we'd welcomed our daughter into the family. My wife and I love enjoying a bottle of wine together with dinner and stuff. And it was kind of the first time in a while we've been able to do that. So that one stuck out to me. And, and I love Ridge. It's like, it's one of my obviously favorite brands in California. And it's just a uh, kind of an inspirational brand for us at Territorium too, just kind of on the style that they produce in and what they represent from a values perspective. Great. Well, thank you for sharing all this information about Territorium Wines and how you are leveraging your PNG experience to build a brand directly targeting what you think millennials are interested in purchasing. So we thank you for sharing all this information and uh, look forward to trying the wines. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you all for having me. Uh, we're a tiny brand, like I said, so this is a huge opportunity and we just appreciate you all bringing us on. And don't forget, you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau if you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.